0: If I asked you to name the cities that have had the most significant impact to the game of baseball, I'm guessing you would quickly rattle off places like Cooperstown, Chicago, St. Louis, New York, Boston, and many others. But St. Petersburg, Florida probably would not be at the top of your list. And a few weeks ago, I would have agreed with you. But after reading the book, 100 Years of Baseball on St. Petersburg's Waterfront, my perspective completely changed. On this bonus episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast. We're traveling south with the book's author, Rick Vaughn, to a little ballpark with a big history. Let's go then to the spot where the stars of the baseball diamond are the brightest and where the thrills of fishing
1: are the greatest. Yes, they all come during the spring training season to St. Petersburg's Al Lang Field, where each year the big league players come for their
0: annual spring training under the warm, tropical Florida sun. This is the Lost Ballparks Podcast. This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful
1: new... Bush Memorial Stadium, and more I tell you, this is South sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area going center field almost filled, and the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a night double at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen, greeting you from Yankee Stadium
0: in New York City. The F&M Schaefer Brewing Company, very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight, and there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason, bringing you mutual game of the day from sunny shy park in the city of philadelphia
1: just the start of things don't so pull up a comfortable chair if you want to take your shoes off go ahead wiggle your toes and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening
0: author rick vaughn spent more than 30 years working as a baseball executive for the baltimore orioles and the tampa bay rays i just finished his new book a hundred years of baseball on st petersburg's waterfront hey rick hey mike how are you i'm doing great first of all I got to tell you, I love this book, and I think anybody who enjoys baseball history will really get into it. Honestly, I was amazed to read about the collection of Hall of Fame players that made it through St. Pete over the past hundred years. It's quite a story, and and I think it's accurate to say that a pair of faulty lungs led to St. Pete becoming one of baseball's great minor league, major league spring training footprints down there on the waterfront. Is that true? (laughs) I think you could say that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's probably true. It it definitely, you know, it led to
0: to me one of the most iconic spring training ballparks of all time. So Al Lang, who will become the central figure of our story of this podcast today, lived in Pittsburgh and a doctor at some point advised him that for his health, for his life, he needed to get out of town.
1: He, he literally, it sounded like in everything that I researched that he was working himself to death. And while he was very successful at a pretty young age in the laundry business, his health had really deteriorated. And the doctor said, the best thing for you is to get out of this climate. And as I wrote in the book, I, I saw three or four different theories as to how he got to St. Pete. The one that I enjoyed the most was he and his wife went to the train station and said, we need to go as far south as we can go on this train. And it, it ended right downtown St. Petersburg.
0: His arrival in St. Pete marked the beginning of an incredible series of events for not just the city, but for baseball in the city.
1: Yeah, I mean, growing up in Pittsburgh, he was one of these kids who used to hang around the hotel uh, where the visiting teams would come in to play the Pittsburgh Alleghenies minor league club. So he fell in love with the game at a very early age. And when he got to St. Pete, he fell in love with the city and the sunshine and the climate and the water and He married that uh, with baseball and was smart enough to pick up at a pretty early period of his living there that tourism was going to be something that was going to drive this city and that baseball was something that could really carry a good
0: bit of that on its back, uh, the publicity that would come from having Major League Baseball in St. Pete. So outlang's first big catch, I think, was landing the St. Louis Browns under the direction of Branch Rickey. Big League Baseball is nothing new to St. Petersburg, a move to bring Major
1: League ball to the air-conditioned city started back in 1913. And
0: the first Major League team to train here was the St. Louis Browns in 1914. The Phillies and Yankees would also be lured to the west coast of Florida. Early on, I think games were played at, at what was it called, Coffee Pot Park? Is that right? Yeah, Coffee Pot Bayou,
1: which was on the other side of town. The Yes, the Browns came in with Branch Rickey. Uh, they left after one year, and then the Phillies came in and stayed for four years. And the Braves came and started uh, spring there in 1922. And that was sort of the beginning of this great journey of baseball between First Avenue and First Street uh, in downtown St. Pete.
0: So, early 1920s, uh, as you said, Al Lang is instrumental in getting the city to build a Waterfront Park, which would serve, as you said, the the spring home of the Boston Braves and the New York Yankees. And there was a key factor, by the way, in the Yankees deciding to leave their spring training home in New Orleans for Waterfront Park. Can you you talk about that? (laughs) Part of
1: it was definitely because of the nightlife that sort of, you know, was hard for Babe Ruth uh, not to get involved with. And, you know, Al Lang, I think all along, it, it sort of became apparent to me that all along he was aiming at the Yankees. He loved baseball. He wanted it there, but he was also smart enough to know. I mean, the Boston Braves were not really an accident either. So when the Yankees came, you had Boston and New York there, two of the three largest media markets at the time, and that was not by accident. I think he had always targeted them. The one thing that St. Pete had to deliver for the Yankees was a training facility because the the, uh, Braves were using Al Lang as their training facility and their game field. So the Yankees needed somewhere to train, and they would play their games at at it was actually Waterfront Park at the time. So they built uh, Crescent Lake Park, which is about three miles away from uh, from that from the ballpark, and it's still standing today. and And that's where the Yankees train. and that's what really sealed the deal. In
0: 1924, a year after it opened, Walter the Train Johnson pitched at Waterfront Park. That sort of began the the cavalcade of historically significant ballplayers who made it through Al Lang at one time or another, or at least down to the waterfront, 10-time All-Star Steve Garvey and Tampa native said that you can make the case that more great players played at Al Lang Stadium than on any other field in history.
1: Yeah, now that Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland are going in this year, that's, uh, it's 195 different Hall of Famers played there. And um, and I think Steve's right. I, I was happy that he said that because it echoed what I felt as well, that I don't know if you could find, a, you know, maybe Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park maybe had more Hall of Famers. But what you had down on the waterfront was you had both leagues coming through there, having the Braves and the Yankees there. So you you really got a variety of different clubs and there was no interleague play, obviously, for many, many years at Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park. So you had the advantage of having and as more and more teams came to train in Florida, you had a really uh, diverse number of teams coming through.
0: March 25th, 1934. Here is the most famous baseball player of all time, the one and only Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth hits a home run at Waterfront Park that that may have been his longest and definitely was the stuff of legend.
1: Yeah, it gets overshadowed by a home run he hit in Tampa. The Red Sox were training in Tampa in 1919, and the home run sort of gets overshadowed by that. There's actually a historical plaque to mark the home run in Tampa. But the one in St. Pete, Everything I read was probably just as far as the one he hit in Tampa, at least in the air, by all accounts. I mean, he was routinely hitting balls over the fence in right field, over First Avenue and into the grounds at the hotel that was located there. It's where the, the Hilton is now. But this one actually hit off the building. He himself, I saw many times after he uh, stopped playing, he referred to that home run quite a bit as his longest home run, the one he hit there at Waterfront Park.
0: In 1935, Ruth, by then a member of the Boston Braves, played his final game at Waterfront Park. And after the game, before leaving on a train headed northbound out of town, he had to make a quick stop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what
1: that speaks to? Yes, he stopped because there was a... (laughs) His community involvement was unbelievable. And one of the groups had made him a cake, which he felt moved enough to stop by and and get this cake. But, you know, um, the all-children's hospital that's... uh, very, very active hospital in St. Pete today. Started out as Crippled Children's Hospital in the 20s. And Babe was one of its largest uh, benefactors. He was involved very heavily in promoting the idea and with his wallet. And he was like that throughout. I mean, they really lost quite a a community uh, advocate when he left. And I think a lot of that sometimes gets overlooked just because of the magnitude of the guy. And um, but he meant an awful lot to that community in the, in the years that we are playing. And I love the fact that when the Yankees came in, he wasn't a big fan of it at first, and neither were any of the Yankees. But they really grew to love the place. And one of my favorite anecdotes about Babe was his birthday was in early February. But five of the last six years he was with the Yankees, he came down early to celebrate his birthday in St. Pete instead of New York. So you could see how that the community had a pull on him how grateful everyone was that he was here for as long as he was.
0: The list of notable events and historic firsts that occurred at Al Lang is long. Eight or more big league teams appear in Al
1: Lang Field every spring. The fans really enjoy these preview games. They're seeing the best in action.
0: Joe DiMaggio hit his first two home runs wearing a Yankee uniform at Waterfront Park. Can you walk me through some of the others and some of the other Hall
1: of Fame greats who played there? My favorite chapter to write, I think, was writing about breaking barriers. Was Jackie Robinson playing there? Um, his first game there was 1952. As a member of the Dodgers, of course, they came over for Vero Beach. It was actually 1950. There was an outfielder by the name of Sam Jethro who was with the Braves. The Braves had moved from St. Pete as their home by that time, but he came in and played at that point in 1950. It was um, called Al Lang Field. And no longer Waterfront Park, a new ballpark was built pretty much close to the same site there, really a very much overlapping footprint. And Sam Jethro came in and played there in uh, 1950 that broke the color barrier. And then weird thing that happened, the Giants and the Yankees switched training sites in 1951 just for one year. And so the Giants came, the New York Giants came and trained in St. Pete. And they brought a number of uh, African-American players, including uh, Monty Irvin, another Hall of Famer. So those were the first black players to train in the city. And then in 52, Jackie came in, and I, I loved researching the games that he played there because there were, um, of the top 11 crowds that ever played on that site, five of them were games that Jackie Robinson played in. He only played seven games there. So there were only two crowds that drew over 8,000. Both were his games. So I loved researching about how impactful that he was on the community. It was both blacks and whites came out to see him play. I got to talk to Don Zimmer's uh, widow, Soot, who's a dear friend. And she was at one of the games, his last game there. And she said the atmosphere was unbelievable, that everywhere you looked, outside the ballpark, inside the ballpark, were people everywhere. And it was just a phenomenal thing. I mean, that was probably my, you know, some of my favorite things. But obviously, DiMaggio, as you mentioned, hit his first home runs there. Stan Musial came along. You know, Stan ended up playing there for 19 spring trainings. And he hit 19 home runs there, which was uh, more than any player hit there. Really began his career switching from a pitcher to an outfielder right there on that site.
0: March 20th, 1940, Ted Williams hits a ball 440 feet and it's not a home run.
1: <laughs> I would have loved to have seen his reaction because from what I read in the newspaper dispatches, he was very annoyed that he had to run the, that hard after hitting a ball that far. But at that point, there were palm trees way, you know, I don't think too many people thought that there would be balls hit off those palm trees, but he hit one off of there. And uh, and he played a number of games there. Hank Aaron Hank Aaron played very well when he was there, of course. he He played only a Uh, A handful of games, maybe 10 or 12 games there, and he hit six home runs. So, you know, he obviously enjoyed playing there. Willie Mays was only there one spring. It was 1973 with the Mets, and he had a bad left knee, which prevented him from playing much. He played in five games at Al-Lang Field that year and uh, hit three home runs. So people got to at least see him uh, for the last time because that was his last spring.
0: Even Bob Euchre had a moment of glory at uh, (laughs) at
1: (laughs) Al-Lang. I was very stunned to read that he threw Roberto Clemente out at second base. Uh,
0: Wait, is that a misprint? Did that really uh, he,
1: I read it in the game story, and then I looked in the box score to make sure that I wasn't uh, that there wasn't an error in the in the story. But it, it clearly did happen, and it was one of his <laughs> finer moments for sure. And then you know, Bob Gibson came into his own there and pitched many, many games there. He he pitched more than any pitcher. Uh, ever through there and won most of his games, of course.
0: For those who haven't seen photos, can you paint a picture of Al Lang Field, which opened in 1947?
1: Yes. Uh, like I said, Waterfront Park was there in 1922. Then they tore that down and built Al Lang Field. Big league managers have selected St. Petersburg as the training site for their teams because here they find sunshine and abundance. At any time of the year. And I'll never forget the first time I got I got to see was at Allang Stadium, which was built on exactly the same footprint as Allang Field. I'll never forget getting off of that bus for the first time in 1985. I was assistant PR director for the Orioles. And, and here's this water, this beautiful, beautiful body of water all along the left field side of things that ran all the way on one side of the ballpark and it was magnificent. I mean, it was, you know, it was basically like the warehouse at Camden Yards, you know, I mean, it was, in a way it kind of, it kind of dwarfed the ballpark in a way, but it was so beautiful. There were always boats out on the water and it was just Florida like I've never seen it. And I, I remember just thinking when I got off the bus that day that this is nothing like I've ever seen. It's just so beautiful. You know, everybody should be painting this and taking pictures of it. It was so extraordinary. Um, And then right field was, it was really the hotel where a lot of the team stayed over the right field fence. The city was to the right field side, but this beautiful expanse of water defined the whole left side. And I mean, was it a great ballpark in terms of the amenities and the seating and everything? It was good. But really, what made it what it was was this beautiful, picturesque, you know, there was no question where you were when you were at, at that ballpark. You were definitely in Florida and it spoke to, exactly what you would kind of almost dream for when you went to a spring training game.
0: Is it true that teams would try to finish games by four o'clock? Otherwise, players and fans had to contend with some unwelcome guests? (laughs) Well, you know
1: what? There's two parts of that. The first part is early on before the Skyway Bridge was built, they really needed to get the games in fairly quickly because uh, if you played, if you were the Red Sox or somebody that was south, uh, the Skyway Bridge wasn't there. You had to take a ferry back. And the last ferry was like, was like five o'clock. So they really wanted to get those to game in so you could get on that last ferry. But yes, uh, later on it was, and I saw it happen many, many times when I was at the ballpark with the Orioles and the Rays, that the, the seagulls would start coming in around four o'clock, you know, looking for scraps of food. And they literally were like covering the skies over the, the outfield and the, over the over the stands. So you needed to, you needed to get that game over with before they started dropping their um, their droppings.
0: Uh, Rick, in addition to Hall of Fame players, many of the games' broadcasting legends called spring training games from Outland Stadium too. You
1: know, when you had the Yankees there, and then you had the Cardinals there. And the tigers would come through, the Dodgers would come through, you had Harry Carey, Ernie Harwell. No, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. All of those kind of guys, I think in one spring they were they all called games from down there. And so and it, it's the same thing with the writers. All the great writers of that time covered games there, and they wanted to cover games there. And the hotels there are great. You got to see a lot of teams come through. A lot of the writers, they would use St. Pete as their headquarters in covering baseball in Florida. And so that just added to the whole thing. You know, Grantland Rice and and, and those kind of guys were regulars at the ballpark in St. Pete. It was kind of the place to be if you were in baseball at that time, because
0: everything seemed to, to begin uh, in St. Pete. And that's where everybody wanted to be. March 13th, 1954. A freak slide into second base at Al Field marked the beginning of a legendary career. That's right. That was Hank Aaron.
1: And Hank was, I believe, like 19 years old at the time. Bobby Thompson. Slides in, breaks his ankle, and all of a sudden, Hank Aaron gets a chance to play. Really, in in some ways, his career kind of got, it definitely got ignited there. There were
0: so many of those kind of things that I found In 1968 alone, 28 Hall of Famers appear at Al Lang. I mean, that's a tsunami of talent coming through St. Pete that year. Here's
1: a side of Major League Baseball that few fans see. These are professional ballplayers at spring training camp. The St. Louis Cardinals, hard at work for that long season ahead. It was amazing. If you went to a game in Al Lang that spring, there was a pretty good chance you were going to see a Hall of Fame pitcher pitch. And there was obviously more than a than a, a good chance that you were going to see numerous guys who would eventually end up into the Hall of Fame. It was a real golden era, you know, of players back then. And again, we still
0: had both leagues coming through. It was such a magical place for many people. Speaking of 68 and future Hall of Fame pitcher, there's one in particular in 1968 that gave up eight runs and 12 hits and a loss to the Twins at Outlang. And manager Earl Weaver, Had some less than encouraging words for him. He said, quote, I wouldn't give a nickel for you pitching in the big leagues again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I enjoyed talking to Jim Palmer about that. Jim has an unbelievable memory. It was one of the things that made him a great Hall of Fame pitcher. He can remember things that he shouldn't be able to remember, but he does. And he remembered that conversation like it was yesterday. You know, it ended up really becoming rocket fuel for him. You know, it, it, it all it did, and maybe that was Weaver's psychology. I don't know. But he'd had a rough game there, uh, given up a couple of home runs. And I definitely think it helped motivate Jim.
0: Well, you know, it's one of those things We could go either way, right? It could sink you and you just become so dejected that you give up baseball or it, it could do what it did to Jim Palmer. So again, it just points to the collection of people who made their way through Al Lang.
1: Yeah, I there was so many uh, names that popped up that, I had no clue. Randy Johnson pitched there when he was in the minor leagues, and and Fergie Jenkins pitched there in the minors, and with the big league club, and even with the senior league. Like I said, there's so many stories of great players
0: coming through there. In 1977, a major renovation was completed, and it's at this point that the ballpark becomes known as Al Lang Stadium. And it's astounding when you think about all the teams that called Al Lang home for spring training. We talked about a bunch of them. Yankees, Cardinals, Giants, Mets, Orioles, Rays. And by... 2008, the Rays had played their final spring training game at Al Lang Stadium. It would become a soccer facility for the Tampa Bay Rowdies, who I believe are using it to this day. Is there anything left from Al Lang that remains? So if you happen upon the ballpark, would there be something to remind you of what happened there?
1: I'm glad you asked that question, Mike, because sadly, the answer is no. I didn't set out to write a book. What I set out to do was to try to get the city to be aware of the history there and to come up with a better, with a way, not a better way, a way of memorializing the history there. And that's how it got me started down this rabbit hole of research. And I ended up getting enough here where I thought, boy, I think I might have enough for a book, but the soccer team, and, and I'm a soccer guy and I'm a Rowdies fan, but they've kind of covered up the whole outside of the ballpark with, you know, their brand. And so you can't even see the name of Al Lang on the outside of the park. So I'm working with, uh, presently with the chamber of commerce and with Saber to try to change that. And Sabre is, is behind this thing. 100%. If you go over to Clearwater and you look at Jack Russell stadium, they've got what they call their monument park there. And if you go up to Tinker field in Orlando, which I've I've gone up there and looked at it and they have a history plaza there. It's really good. I mean, it's not huge, but all the stuff they have there, it would take you 30 minutes to go through and read everything that they have preserved there about what they preserved. And it's so well done, it's educational, it's respectful. And that's kind of what I would like to see happen here. It, it, our history it dwarfs Jack Russell. It dwarfs Tinkerfield. You know, we had two teams there for 60 years, and so many things happened there. And they did at the other ballparks, too, but not to what happened here. And to me, not to have memorialized that even to
0: this point, it's kind of puzzling to me appreciate the work that you've done, not just with the book, but but the ongoing effort to f- find some way to make these things known. Well, and you know,
1: we've got tremendous growth going on in the city right now. It's a great thing. You can't go two city blocks without seeing a crane of some sort building, you know, condos or whatever. And I've got a suspicion that a lot of those people that have moved in here since 2008, which was the last time baseball was played, they have no idea what went on there, that it was even maybe a baseball venue. So that was one of the reasons I decided to do it was to maybe educate people that didn't know about it, that are baseball fans, and also to bring back some memories of the people that are natives that saw a lot
0: of this stuff happen and to trigger some memories uh, for them as well. It really is a great read. It's called 100 Years of Baseball on St. Petersburg's Waterfront, How the Game Helped Shape a City. We've got a link in the podcast notes for folks to uh, check it out, and I highly recommend picking up this book. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Mike. In many parts of the country, you can still feel the bite of winter. Maybe a little hard to imagine spring training or playing baseball. If that's the case, this would be the perfect book on a weekend to get you in the mood for spring training baseball. It's a great walk through time that you for sure will enjoy. And again, we've got um, a link to the book that you can order inside the podcast notes and on the website at lostballparks.com. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by Maddie Zavalakis, Briggs Buckingham, Kyle Schmidt, Mike Dunn, Brian Bingert, Xavier Guerra, Ryan Beard, and John Carter. Thanks again for listening and supporting the Lost Ballparks podcast.
1: And with that, we'll say so long for now with a warm invitation for both baseball fans and fishing enthusiasts, and for you who just look for year-round outdoor recreation and fun, to come to St. Petersburg, Florida, the friendly sunshine city, and perhaps you'll find here your own sunny strike.